In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with queen mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. And this week, I've got some housekeeping to to say before we get involved. Um, You will have noticed there is a slight change in your Patreon. For those of you who are on Patreon, um, I have decided now to try my very best to get a couple of episodes ahead. So... We're never in a situation where you're waiting two or three weeks for an episode, so hopefully you're going to find that you are constantly going to be getting episodes going forwards every week. For those of you who are on Patreon, you will get access to these episodes early. Okay, so this is one another advantage of being on Patreon. Apart from the fact that you don't have to deal with those annoying adverts, you will get these episodes in advance so if you are interested in that or you can't wait to hear my voice you'll have to go over to patreon.com forward slash this week in history and it's five dollars a month just a month not a week or a day five dollars a month uh, and the support goes towards the podcast as well so it's it's very very good on another note we've dropped out of the charts this week guys uh, for the first time in about six months I've dropped out of the Irish charts. So for those of you in Ireland who are not listening, you need to start listening again. We are still in the uh, top 200 on Apple iTunes for America and the UK. So hopefully if we can keep pushing that, guys. Um, just send out your favorite uh, episode to someone. The more downloads we get, it pushes me a little bit higher up the charts, brings more people in, the more people that come in. Hopefully I'll be able to quit my job and do this full time. So that's that's the plan. Let's get me there where uh, I don't have to work ever again. That's what we want. And this week, guys, we are joined by my dad again. We have uh, one that I would say quite an interesting one. An interesting character. A very famous character for anybody who is into their Second World War history. Someone who is... Considering his um, lineage is going to be quite hard not to make make sound good. Uh, make sound, that's not even good English, that is it? <laughs> you know what I mean. Trying to make him uh, come across in a good light. 
I think it's going to be a bit. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, because he he's quite an impressive character. I suppose he's one of those ones that you would look at and go, when you're reading out his achievements and things like that, you would probably see him as a, a quite a successful person, maybe quite quite a good person even. We'll we'll see what we can do. Hopefully not give him too much praise. But this is the man that I, I think even my grandpa would have feared on a battlefield. I think he probably would. Yeah. So who are we talking about this week, Dad? Uh, we're talking about... Uh Michael Wittman. Yes. Now, for those of you who do know, obviously my my grandpa, uh, my dad's granddad, uh, fought in the Second World War. If you guys listen to the introduction and don't skip through it, that is the song for the Grenadier Guards, which is my grandpa's regiment. And he was a tank commander of Churchill tanks during the Second World War. He was. He commanded six Churchill tanks. Yeah, and there's a funny story that's gone through our family for many years <laughs> that he decided to take these tanks from the depot in Luton and drive them down Vicarage Road in Watford to stop for a cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. he's not allowed to do. He had to he had to pick up six uh, brand new Churchill tanks from the Vauxhall factory in Luton and he drove all the way down and in going back down to the coast to uh go over the channel to uh, Normandy he drove through Watford and uh, his uh, then fiance's mother lived in Watford and he pulled up in her little tiny cul-de-sac of a road which for I don't know if they call them cul-de-sacs in the US it's a dead end road anyway yeah. <laughs> he parked six British Churchill tanks on the road and went in for a cup of tea with all the uh, the drivers. <laughs> so, so uh, yes. yeah. Hence, um, for those of you who have worked out, put two and two together, you'll probably realise that Michael Vittman was something to do with something tanks. to do with tanks, which is go. why he would not have been a friend to our family. Well, <laughs> okay. So, what do we know about him? Well, there are very few people in the world who haven't heard of the Red Baron from the First World War. But uh, I'd say virtually nobody has heard of the Black Baron. No, it's uh, like I say, it's uh, not not a good nickname for anyone German. Well, I suppose if you're German, it's a good nickname. Mm. But for an Allied, um, well, he was uh, he was German, obviously. Second World War, he didn't fly any aircraft. He was one of Germany's tank aces, um, and unlike the Red Baron Manfred von Richthofen, he wasn't even an aristocrat. Between myth and reality, he's a figure of immense importance to the history of armoured warfare. Uh, he wasn't the highest ranked tanker, which is what we call the, the, these, these people. Yeah, tanker. <laughs> and he didn't destroy the most, enemy, most number of enemy tanks. In the actual order of number of tank kills, he only ranks fifth. Wow. See, now I, I, I'm surprised at that because obviously I, this is one that I do know a little bit about, not not a huge amount. I always find when you uh, tell me your, your research, when I don't put too much information in because I like to be surprised. Surprised. Um, oh, but no, from what I worked out, I thought he was probably the the best, but no, he, or at he least was, the most uh, successful. He was ranked fifth in all-time tank kills, but he was the most decorated... And the most famous tank commander of the Third Reich. Okay, so the most decorated. So, okay. I mean, few tank commanders were actually honoured, 
and only the most successful military personnel of every branch were ever decorated by Hitler himself. And of these, very, very few were tank commanders. Michael Wittmann was one of these. Hmm. So he's uh, not just successful, he was you know, seen as quite a successful one in the eyes of Hitler, which is yeah. not it's not just a mean feat. He's not, not a, like a Kim Jong-un in North Korea who hands them out like merit badges in school. No. no. I mean, have to work for I, it. If we put Michael Wittmann in, in context, um, and we're talking about the, the German side, the Third okay. Reich, he ranks fifth. Now, yes. there was the number one was a gentleman called Kurt Knipsel. Uh, he destroyed 168 tanks. That's quite a few. That's quite a few. Martin Schroif, 161. Otto Carius, 150. Uh, Johannes Bolter, 139 to 144. There's a bit of discrepancy with his. Michael Wittmann, 138 tanks destroyed, 132 anti-tank guns. Okay. So that's his record. So he wasn't the best, but he was the most famous. He's not far from it, though. I mean, 30 uh, tanks is not... It's a 30-odd tanks. That's that's the only difference. Yeah, it's not okay. miles off. So what did it take to be a tank ace? All right? Because unlike pilots, you became an ace as a pilot if you shot down five enemy aircraft. Obviously, it didn't count if you shot down your own. <laughs> yeah. But a tank commander would only be designated an ace after destroying a substantial number of enemy armoured vehicles. But the number was never actually qualified. So there wasn't a specific number. Yeah. And it was only the Germans that ever gave U-boat aces, tank aces. Okay, fair enough. All right. Now, to put Wittmann into context, he destroyed 138 tanks. The closest person to him on the opposing side, how many do you think they got? He was actually a Russian, by the way. See, now, you would have thought, I mean, obviously, for me personally, I would have said it would have been, it wouldn't be anywhere near as high because Mm. of the fact that the German Panzers and Tigers were so much, so far superior to what the Allies had. But I wouldn't have said... I would have said you'd probably be looking around the 100 mark. Around the 100. So you're yeah. reckoning around the 100. The um, the actual gentleman that we that came the closest on the opposing side to the Germans was a Russian called Dmitry Lavrienko. And he s- destroyed 52 tanks. Okay, so a lot less than what I thought. A lot less. Uh, to put that into context, the um, highest-ranking... Um, allied, non-Russian, was a gentleman called uh, Sidney Radley Walters, and he destroyed 18 tanks. Okay. And he was Canadian. He was Canadian. (laughs) Uh, The highest-ranking US tank commander, as we want to was a Sergeant Lafayette Poole, and he destroyed 12 tanks. Right. Included and added onto that 258 other vehicles, but we're talking tanks here. Lieutenant Colonel Abrams. Yep. Now he's the man that uh, his name's been given to the latest American tank, I think, the Abrams tank. 
he knocked out 50 5-0 vehicles, which included several tanks. Okay, that's yeah, that's uh, <laughs> the classic way of saying, well, he, he did this, but... Yeah. yeah. Um, and the highest British was a gentleman called Alfie Nichols, who got 13 1-3 tanks. That's um, not very good. All right. So, and when you consider that in the tank battles of the Second World War, the ones that we would concern ourselves with, the Allied side, the Americans, the British, the Canadians, were all on the offensive. The Germans were defending. Yeah. Yeah. So you can it puts Michael Vittman's 138 tanks into a lot of perspective. Yeah. He was yeah, good. It does. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he does have a better tank. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you got to think of it. I mean, and the crew of a tank on any side in, in, in the Second World War did not have an easy time. They lived in a world of noise, limited light, cramped conditions, little or no sight of the outside world. Only the commander and the driver could actually see what was happening outside the tank. Uh, the gun aimer had a very, very small periscope to look through, and he only did this when he was aiming the gun. The escape hatches to get out of a tank were very, very small, so a quick exit isn't always possible. And given that the main reason for getting out of a tank would be after it's been hit by the enemy, you've got to be fully aware that the enemy is on the outside and that's where you're going. So they're outside waiting to shoot anybody who gets out of a tank. Yeah. Yeah, so you're kind of almost safer in the tank. Yeah. Yeah. All right tank crews lived ate and slept with the vehicles and all the time they they knew they were a constant target by by aircraft infantry other tanks anti-tank guns all of that most crews would sleep outside their tanks at night and never ever underneath it despite the protection that a tank would give you if you laid underneath it it wasn't unknown for those that did to actually be crushed by the tanks during the night because the tanks are that heavy they sink into the ground so yeah. uh, think and in the case of a german tiger tank it was very heavy so people didn't shelter under their tanks yeah it's probably not a good idea it wouldn't have been the safest place to be although on the face of it it's sort of uh, we, we would have thought so even when operating and, and driving tanks death was almost sort of constant companion there the uh, limited vision available to tank crews meant that they probably wouldn't even see the fatal shot coming in yeah all right most tank victories were because one tank saw their target and fired before the other one was even aware now if they were lucky an incoming shell would bounce off the armor but it could equally damage a vital part of the exterior like a part of the turret part of the exhaust or or the tracks Um, and if a tank was immobilized the crew had to get out before the second shot came in right okay which wasn't always that far along no but you got to remember the enemy were targeting that tank and therefore they were waiting for the crew to get out and then you've got the shot that actually penetrated the armour of the tank and exploded inside. Now, uh, that would 
totally obliterate the crew. It could set off the ammunition that the yeah. tanks carried. I mean, a Tiger tank, and we're talking a Tiger tank mainly in this particular sort of podcast, actually carried 92 rounds for the main gun. So it wasn't a small amount of ammunition they had on board. Oh, yeah, that goes up. That's going. Yeah. So, But the worst thing that a tank crew could ever suffer was a fire um if your tank was hit the chances of survival were fairly slim and a fire was very very common yeah well, uh, the, the sherman tanks were known for that weren't they the american the american sherman tanks were they were, were known for that and the churchills were called tommy cookers by the uh, germans yeah so the yeah Brit- they, the british and american tanks were were very prone were, to were going shit. up yeah. <laughs> they went up in flames very quickly um, for much of the war, the Germans had the best tank. Yes. And that would be the Tiger. And I think, if I'm right in saying that, the only time it was ever rivaled was when they put a bigger gun on the Sherman. Uh, the Firefly. Yeah, for yeah. the 78. Was it 78 on the, on the Sherman? Mm, I, I've got the figures later on. So yeah. they're, they're... See how good my historical knowledge is now. Mm. Gonna... There are so many reports of recovered tanks... Uh, having to have the remains of their previous crews washed out before being repaired and slung back into service. Mm. Yeah, so life in a tank, it wasn't glamorous. It was cold, it was hard, it was cramped, and it was extremely dangerous. This is the kind of world that Wittmann and his crew actually occupied. Was there that type of respect with tanks? So you you tend to find um, a lot of air you know air force would say you know they'd they'd shoot a plane once they realized that the plane was immobilized they would let the pilot get out you know they'd Mm. they'd let the pilot get out same with naval battles a lot of the time you know they'd pick the the sailors out of the sea from the enemy rather than let them drown did there was that there that respect with the tanks do you think you know unfortunately there wasn't no no, if you did the tank and tank crew were one, and if you let the tank crew go away, then they'd jump in another tank and continue to fight. Right. Okay. So, so, so they no. The, so if they got out the tank, it was it was were, yeah. You were, you were fair you, game. Yeah. Fair enough. So I mean, Michael Vittman, he wasn't born into a military family, and he wasn't even a member of the upper class. He was a farm boy. He was born just before the First World War on a farm in. Uh, well, it was in Germany. I think it's called Vogelthal, which is near uh, Dietfurt in Bavaria. Um, he was born on the 22nd of April 1914, um, and he was the first of five children. Um, the others were Johann Jr., and he had three sisters, Franziska, Annie, and uh, Teresa. And, and the village that he was born in only had 120 residents. I mean, it weren't big. Smaller than Grimsby. <laughs> I'm not going down that route. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, he grew up on the farm. He learnt as much as he could about farm machinery. Um, he was a good hunter and he was quite a good shot. And at 19 years old, on the 1st of February, he joined the Volunteer Labour Service. Now, bearing in mind 1934, you're talking, uh, it's the beginning of the nazi era Mm, to Um, to hitler isn't it yeah and um the uh the the volunteer labor service called the fad later become or later became the rad Uh, and the rad sort of evolved into a minor 
paramilitary organization uh, when there were several other similar organizations about bearing in mind he was 19 he was only there for six months uh, before he actually moved on to the german army okay yeah um, and he became an infantryman so they gave him a gun and told him to walk basically <laughs> uh, during his two years because it was two years two years service he'd signed up for um, he encountered what they call the panzerkampfwagen which was a panzer one it was a tank um, he became fascinated by this vehicle. It was a light tank. Um, and to be honest, the workings of it weren't much different to, to the farm equipment that he was used to. And as an infantry person, he learned the strengths and weaknesses of it and a number of ways of stopping them. Okay. So two years in the army, he left and he went to work on the railway, railways. All right. Um, he didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you wouldn't do, really, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. He didn't like that. So he ended up, in 1936, joining the Schutzstaffel. The SS. The SS. Yeah. All right. His recent military service enabled him to pass the fitness test and actually get in, because it wasn't easy. At the t that time, it was not easy to get into the SS. No. All right. And um, he passed... And he got posted to the 1st Panzer Division. So he got posted to a tank regiment. Which is pretty much what he wanted, really, wasn't it? Yeah. But he was posted to the 1st Panzer Division Liebstandarte SS Adolf Hitler. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. It's a bit of a mouthful. The LSSAH. Right. It's an elite SS unit. It was right. the unit that was responsible prior to the Second World War was the unit that was responsible for the ceremonial occasions and was Adolf Hitler's personal bodyguard. Right, okay. So, so that's the unit he's gone to. That's pretty impressive then. You know, they must have seen something in him quite early. It's not an easy thing to get. It no. wasn't an easy thing to get into. The, you know, they, they only took certain types of people. You had to be a certain height. You had to have certain backgrounds. You had yeah, to have certain eyes. You <laughs> had to be, yeah, and, and fitness. It was just, it was a very, very elite unit. Yeah. Okay. He wasn't in the SS. Um, sorry, he wasn't in the Nazi party. Hmm. But he had to become a member of the Nazi party. He's, right. in, he's in the Schutzstaffel. He, he could not stay there if he wasn't a Nazi party member. So he had to join. Yeah. And basically, the people that met him said he was not a typical Nazi. Um, he was a likable man. He was quiet. And he was, you know, just an average person. He wasn't a dick. No. No. <laughs> it's really the best way. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, <laughs> I, I would suggest, yeah, that's probably a very good way of describing him. Um, I mean, Wittmann was a skilled driver, and as a result, he actually got given uh, the command of a reconnaissance vehicle. He became the driver and commander of a Stug 3. All right. Um, it's a, a Schumgeschultz 3. It's an assault gun tank destroyer. Yeah. So it's basically, it's a tank without a turret. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, um, and he later moved on to a Panzer III. Now, Panzer III was a medium tank. Eventually, he graduated onto the Tiger. Now, most of his service was spent on the Eastern Front against the Russians. Right. 
And the Russians at the time had a tank called the T-34. And the T-34 was described by one of the German generals as the finest tank in the world. This is a German general. It was... Um, well, the general's name was Paul Ludwig Ewald von Kleist. He was a field marshal, right. and he was in charge of the German tanks early on in the war. All right. The T-34 weighed about 30, well, uh, 26 tons and had a 76-millimeter gun. This is where we start getting technical. Yeah? yeah. Panzers were no match for that whatsoever. Right. Yeah. And that's until the Tiger One comes along. Now, the yeah. Tiger One arrives on the scene, and it weighs in at 56 tonnes with an 88-millimetre gun. But it has four and three-quarter inches of frontal armour. Okay. Now, that's a lot of armour, yeah, 120 millimetres. That's quite a bit. There are numerous reports of Tiger Ones surviving frontal hits from Allied tanks as close as 150 yards. Wow. Well, the force of one of them, that's... 450 feet, tank against tank, and the shell bounces off a tiger. Yeah. That's not going to be a nice sight if you're sat in a British tank, though, is it? Or no. a Russian tank. The later Mark II tank, Tiger, was even more impressive. Um, that weighed in at 63 tonnes. Now, <clears throat> unfortunately for the Russians... The German Tiger tank was vastly superior in every aspect. Um, a Tiger could destroy another tank at a range of a mile, and it could destroy a Russian T-34 at a mile and a half. Pretty hell. All right. They were so feared on the battlefield uh, that the opponents of the Germans devoted substantial, re uh, substantial resources in actually tracking and destroying these particular tanks. Uh, they were virtually impossible to destroy from the front, but it did have a weakness. The Tiger had thinner armour along its sides and rear, and it was still slightly vulnerable in these areas. Like most tanks of the era, the tracks were the, the real vulnerable part. It was the weakest point on the tank, and once damaged, an immobilised uh, Tiger was going to be an easy target to hit. They're big. Yeah. Yeah. But it still could cause enough damage to fire back. We've well, got 92 shells on board. It's going to fire back. Yeah. Yeah, and the people ain't going to get out unless they really have to. Yeah. yeah. Kind of reminds me... Sorry, just to stop. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the Bismarck. Yeah. In the sense that when the British had surrounded it, it just because it was dead in the water, it was still quite... Still caused a problem. Yeah, it was still going to be dangerous. Uh, the biggest problem with Tiger tanks is they were so bloody expensive to make. Mm, yeah, and and they took a, a hell of a lot of metal, which Germany didn't actually have very much of, especially in the second half of the war. Yes. Only 1,837 Tiger 1s and 2s were built. So mm. there's 18, just over 1,800 Tigers during the Second World War. You compare that to the Russians, 84,000 T-34s. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, to be fair, one Tiger was probably worth about 10,000 Russian T-34s. Mm -hmm. so. um, I mean, the, the, the US Shermans are shade under 50,000. Which, considering most of them had to be shipped across, is yeah. bloody impressive. Um, and the British Churchill tanks, 5,500, well, 5,640 British Churchills. 
Hmm. So when you compare that 1,800 Tigers against that amount of tanks, yeah. they are um, a very, very formidable machine. Mm. Um, it, there is no doubt whatsoever that if Germany had been able to produce Tigers in the same numbers as the Russians, the British, or the Americans, uh, they'd have won. They'd have won the war. Yeah. You got you get eighty four thousand tigers on the on on a battlefield. Ain't gonna stop it. No, you know. No, they struggled to stop one thousand. So yeah. So you know, there's, it's it's one of those. Um, I mean, <laughs> Michael Vittman. I mean, he wasn't the only person that contributed uh, to the success of the German tanks. He always had a hand picked crew. He picked his crew, and in although they changed occasionally he spent most of the war accompanied by the his gunner um a gentleman called uh balthazar vol uh, and vol uh became as famous in the german army as whitman himself i mean german tank crews and german tank schools they trained the crews to fire when stationary all right it increased the accuracy and the training manual was made very very clear in great big letters on the training manual precision over stupidity but obviously the crews that fought in a tiger tank had much more time because of the armor protection they had a lot more time to perfect the tactics of, of actually fighting with these uh, these vehicles and Vitman encouraged his men to use every single aggressive tactic he could find one of those was the ability to fire on the move yeah so despite all the training Vitman's tank unit could fire on the move and vol he was he had an ability to shoot at targets while the tank was moving at high speed and he was accurate Vitman and vol proved to be a, a fantastic team they spent most of their time on the eastern front acquiring the skills that they would use all right the two were very very close friends i mean vol even went as uh, a witness at Vitman's wedding yeah yeah see balthazar vol was awarded the knight's cross in 1944 he was given command um, of a tank of his own later on um, he was seriously wounded in 1945 in france when his uh, tank squadron were attacked by allied aircraft and he spent the uh, rest of the war in hospital um, <laughs> eventually he became an electrician he died in 1996 Bloody hell. so he, he made it through the war so so vitman's um gunner best mate. Yeah. and best mate actually survived the war so what did vitman do with his crew that made him so famous and here are some of the things he did. Yeah. Okay. So I I could make this a whole list, but we'll go through a couple of the incidents that, that Vittman actually did. Okay. Uh, 22nd of June, 1941, Operation Barbarossa. It was the invasion of Russia. Uh, Germany invaded with 3 million soldiers, 3,600 tanks. All right. So a few of those would have been Tigers. Yeah. Uh, the Russians had less men, 2.9 million, but they had 20,000 tanks. Now, the LSSAH, the Liebstandarte yeah. Adolf Hitler, was Adolf Hitler's personal bodyguard, the SS unit, that Wittmann was involved in, were given the spearhead of the invasion um, with the tanks, and that included Wittmann in his Stug 3, the tank destroyer. 
it was mainly uh, an assault gun for infantry support. It only weighed 24 tons. It had a 75mm gun. Um, and because it was turretless, you had to move the tank in order to aim the gun. Right, okay. So it's not an it's an awkward So basically one. it's a tank without a turret and the gun sticks out from the sloping armor on the front. Yeah. Yeah. On the 12th of July, so we're a couple of weeks into Operation Barbarossa, about 120 miles south of Kiev, the German armored units were met by Russian T34s. Mm-hmm. This stopped the German advance. 100% bang. You got like loads of these T-34s coming at you. Wittmann was ordered to do a little bit of a reconnaissance and he was ordered to advance ahead of the main force and see what he could see. So he goes up in his Stug 3 and at this time in the war, the, the T-34 was the best tank in the world. The Russians had the best tank. So he's ordered to observe only, not engage. So he comes out of some woods and he's confronted by six T-34s directly ahead of him and another 12 off to the right. Okay. That gives odds of 18 to 1. Yeah, I'm not a betting man, but that's not good. It certainly isn't. Vitman opened fire and destroyed two two T-34s before disappearing back into the woods. (laughs) So he stuck his nose out, bang, bang, pulled back. He stayed in the woods for a little bit, and then he took on and destroyed another T-34. He, he destroyed four of them. Bloody hell. Right, so he's, he's now taken out six. Okay. So he's decreased his odds. Yeah. And he then shot back to the German lines and gave his report. In a very short time, in a couple of minutes, on his own, in a, an inferior vehicle, he stopped the Russian counterattack on his own. Yeah, that's quite impressive. Uh, he, the, the, his superior officers were so impressed with that he, that they off, they gave him the Knight's Cross second class. Okay. And they called Sergeant Wittmann back to Germany to train as an officer. Right. And they trained him on the German answer to the T-34, the Tiger I. Yes. He came out of training school as an SS second lieutenant. And this was where he started to rise to fame. So he had quite... Um, was, he worked his way up. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't an easy oh, no. task. When you think of most of the generals in, in obviously, in this time and uh, the German army, the British army as well, they're sort of born into that role. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas... He was a farm boy. Yeah. So... Worked for it. Now, with the defeat of the German forces at the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942, the Russians started pushing the Germans back. By the end of June 1943, they'd created uh, a massive sort of bulge in the German lines. Uh, The bulge was about 160 miles wide by about 100 miles deep. So the Russians are pushing into the German lines. The Germans had to halt the Russian advance. I mean, we all know, we'll know the end of the window. We all know that the Russians came out on top eventually. But um, at this point in time, the Germans needed to stop the Russian advance and prevent a substantial portion of their own army being surrounded and captured. So the answer to this was Operation Citadel. 
It began on the 5th of July 1943 and basically the plan was to close the bulge using armour from north and south and cutting off the uh, opposing Russian forces. Mm-hmm. That would leave the Russian forces surrounded and they could just pick them off. Okay, This became known as the Battle of Kursk. All right. History tells us that this was the biggest and greatest tank battle of all time. Okay. All right. There were 780,000 German soldiers with 2,500 tanks. And they were pitched against 2 million Russian soldiers and 5,000 tanks. To pretty much basically double on both aspects. Yeah. Easily. The Battle of Kursk lasted from the 5th of July all the way through to... uh, the 23rd of August, 1943. And for the purpose of the podcast, we'll just concern ourselves with a very small part of it. You could do a whole podcast on the Battle of the Kursk. Of the, you, yeah. Yeah. But just for now. So we're gonna, I'm going to concentrate on uh, a, a, an incident that occurred, uh, and I think you pronounce the town's name, Prokhovaka. Okay. Yeah, it's near Kursk. It's about 54, 54 miles southeast of, of Kursk. And the battle lasted for only three hours. The Germans were outnumbered two to one. And they began the attack with 294 tanks and assault guns against Russians with 616 tanks and assault guns. Right. So, like you said earlier, almost double. Yeah. Wittmann led from the front. And well, he had to take over being commander because the commander had been wounded. He began the attack at dawn on July the 12th. The Russians had already planned for this attack. They knew the Germans were coming. So the, the Russians had what they'd done is they'd dug in several lines of T-34s. They'd dug them into the ground. So basically just the turret was sticking out from the ground. Okay. So they dug them in. That doesn't seem very clever for a tank that can't move mm, well just the if you've got move. lines of them bearing in mind we're only talking it's not a very big battlefield this it's not yeah. that's 160 odd miles it's a, a few hundred yards you've got all of those tanks now, s- some of them are dug in yeah all right they presented very very low targets and they had a mound of earth in front of them as extra armor but unfortunately the Germans attacked with Tigers and the Russian shells just bounced off the Tigers and the, the, the Tigers guns just punched through the earth mounds and straight into the T-34s. It just uh, basically, it obliterated them. So along with the other German units, Wittmann's tank unit continued to advance firing as it went. And, and Wittmann's tank, alone took out eight tanks and 12 anti-tank guns okay all right the russians were on the verge of losing the battle so they threw absolutely everything at the german advance 500 t-34s attacked the tigers uh Wittmann was ordered to take his unit to high ground and Obviously, they realised the Russians were actually attacking and not defending at that point. You've got 500 T-34s coming over, along with the ones that they hadn't destroyed, which is dug into the ground. Yeah. So there's a lot of them. 
at one mile distance, Wittmann saw over 100 tanks heading for his particular position. They were coming over open ground, and he's only got a few Tigers. Now, a Tiger could destroy a T-34 at just under one and a half miles. But for the Russian tanks to have any effect at all, they had to hit the Tigers on the side, and they had to be a hell of a lot closer than that. Mm. So if you've got hundreds of tanks converging on one another and hundreds of, of tanks perched on the top of a crest, I mean, that sound must have been horrendous. Yeah. You know, um, and the Tigers waited until the, the Russian tanks were only 800 yards away, and then they just opened up, and you've got a shooting gallery. Yeah, so it's like easy pickings for them, isn't it? Because they're, they're not getting return fire. It's just yeah, free shot. Um, um, the German tanks couldn't miss. Uh, there were so many Russian tanks that, unfortunately, they couldn't all be stopped. The two tank armies collided. So they... they came into major contact and um, once in close contact a russian tank could take out a tiger but it had to be very close and not the front right all right um Wittmann's unit starts to move and obviously him and his crews were able to fire on the move contrary to their, all their training and Wittmann's tank was hit twice um but it kept going but more importantly, it kept going firing. The battle was a massive melee of, of tanks absolutely everywhere and continued for three hours. Wittmann's unit alone, the, LS, the LSSAH, destroyed 151 tanks on that day. Wow. At the end of the battle, Wittmann's unit still held the hill. Okay, so they kind of won then, basically. They had turned back five Soviet tank brigades. Yeah, they won then. They won. They kept the hill. Doesn't mean they won the battle, but they kept the hill. Yeah. The Germans lost 80 tanks and assault guns, 842 men killed, and 19 aircraft shot down. Because they used Stuka dive bombers on the, on the Russian tanks. The Russians lost 400 tanks, hmm. 5,500 men, and 14 aircraft. Okay, just a few more. Yeah, that was that particular area. Taken as a whole, the Battle of the Kursk, or the Battle of Kursk, the Russians lost 254,000 men killed or missing, 608,000, almost 609,000 wounded. 7,000 tanks and 3,000 aircraft. This is with the Germans, this was the Russians' losses. Right, okay. The German losses 165,000 men, 1,200 tanks, 681 aircraft. It's the biggest battle in, uh, in history. Based on those figures, the Germans won it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, then, but ba based on kills, the Confederates won the. Civil War. Yeah, yeah well, that's, <laughs> it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't it, always work like that. I mean, I mean, despite the losses, the Russians succeeded in in stopping the German advance. So it's really realistically got to be classed as a Russian victory. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, um, it is, isn't it? Over the next few weeks, the, Ger the Russians pushed the Germans backwards, and Wittmann's unit was constantly engaged in protecting the German retreat. On December the sixth. 
Wittmann's unit, now named the 101st Heavy Panzer Battalion, was ordered to attack a Russian supply convoy near uh, Brusilov. Unfortunately for Wittmann, there was a unit of anti-tank guns between the convoy and the Germans. The, these guns were good. They didn't have any effect on the front armour of a Tiger, but they could uh, penetrate a side armour at 1,000 metres. Okay. They were highly effective, the Russian anti-tank guns. So Wittmann decides, I'm going to do something a bit different. Uh, He goes forward on his own in his tank as a bait for the Russian guns. Which, to be honest, isn't the most sensible thing that I would be doing. No, no, not me. They took the bait. And from that, Wittmann could work out where they were they revealed their positions by t- by firing on his tank Wittmann basically got the hell out of there but knowing the russian guns and where they were the rest of the unit could attack from the side yeah they knew where they were so they went and they took them out they wiped out the anti-tank battery and at the end of this particular battle Wittmann's tank had 28 hits on his tank bloody hell that's a lot. <laughs> it's just quite a bit, yeah. you know. Um, you'd be more annoyed if you'd seen a direct hit and just nothing. Do you know what I mean? Now, would have been a bit pissed off. While his unit was actually attacking the Russian guns, <laughs> Fitman goes through the Russians and onto the road used by the convoys. He sees a convoy on the road and decides to attack it. He's on his own. Right. Okay. But if he's if he's front on, he's kind of safe. Well, he's safer than he would normally be. First targeted and destroyed the lead tank and then the rear tank. That left the whole convoy trapped in the middle of the road. They couldn't go forwards, they couldn't go back. Because you've got two disabled tanks. And he then drove down, bang, 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 bang. Destroyed every single vehicle in that convoy single-handedly. <laughs> Bloody hell. That's quite impressive. Over the next couple of weeks, Wittmann goes on to destroy 61 Russian tanks. Wow. And when you bear in mind that we go back, the, the highest British scored 13. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. did that in two weeks. He did it in a couple or of weeks. weeks. Yeah. Now, he having reached 117 tank kills... Uh, he was awarded the Knight's Cross, the second highest honour that could ever be disposed to be given to uh, a German military personnel during that war. Um, and he was promoted to Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. British pronunciation? Yes, yeah, yes. Sir. Lieutenant, not Lieutenant. No, even though it's still spelt Lieutenant. Well, it's, it's French spelling, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. enough said about them. Um, um <laughs> He was actually summoned to the wolf's lair to receive his this medal from Adolf Hitler himself. The wolf's lair? Yeah, it was Adolf Hitler's um, private retreat. Oh, the bunker in... Um... It was in the Bavarian forest. Yeah. Yeah. He became the 380th member of German forces to be awarded this medal. And he was promoted to the commander of the battalion's second company, 
Um, he became um, an SS Übersturmführer. That's that was the title. Okay. Um, and uh, on the seventh of June, he got told he's going to Normandy. Right. Right. So, but to be honest, let as much as we know what happened, that was probably a blessing for him. Because seventy five percent of the German military was based in Russia after Barbarossa. So the fact that they probably you probably had a little bit of an easier time on the Western Front than you did on the Eastern. Quite possibly, yeah. 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 Well we'd have thought so. Um due to the advance or the rapid advance of uh, the Anglo American forces after D Day. Yeah. Uh, that does make a difference. Wittmann and his tank unit were placed close to a town called uh, Villers Bocage. Um, and this was to basically prevent the British from taking the high ground near the town. He arrives at the town on the 12th of July and he only has six tanks, which is half of his unit's normal strength. That they, The Germans by this time were suffering from a lack of fuel, uh, lack of resources, and and all the bits that basically ended the war for yeah. them. The next morning, so we're talking the 13th of June, the British 7th Armoured Division made its way into the town, Villiers-Bocage, and they were passing down a hedge-lined road. Now, Wittmann's unit, his six tanks, had stopped in a field the other side of this hedgerow. Right. And they'd stopped there for the night. Uh, the road that the British unit was was driving down was less than 200 metres away. That's, that's just over 200 yards. Yeah, that's pretty close. All right. <laughs> Wittmann saw the British tanks and uh, completely surprised at, uh, at breakfast time and he thought that his unit had been seen and they were the British were going to attack him. So he went straight to his tank and he didn't wait for the others. He started up his own tank and at 9 o'clock in the morning, in tank 205, Wittmann came out of the hedges onto the road. Okay. In front of the British armoured column. British are going down the road, hedges British on. British hadn't seen him. Hadn't seen him. <laughs> Suddenly, the British column, full of tanks and armoured vehicles, is confronted by a Tiger II in the middle of the road. Probably not what they were expecting. No. He takes out the first tank. So Wittmann takes out the first tank before it even sees him. He then proceeds to drive down the convoy, taking out every single vehicle as he drives past. <laughs> right. Okay. He, he he continues on until there isn't a vehicle left in the convoy. He's on his own. He makes it into the eastern end of the town, uh, where he was confronted by a couple of light tanks and a medium tank, a couple of medium tanks. Uh, by then, the British know he's there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Wittmann uh, sort of goes into the town, which is probably a bit of a mistake because the British, knowing he's there, pulled their light tanks out of the way. Yeah. They pulled them off the road. 
you know, you've got a light tank against a very, very heavy 64-ton Tiger II. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't going to make a, sl- a dent in it. No. All right. Vitman has taken out British tanks, artillery observation posts, scout cars, half-tracks. Um, he eventually comes up against a Sherman tank, a Firefly, which is what you mentioned right at the beginning. Yeah. It's a Sherman tank with a bigger gun. Yeah. Yeah. Now, although the Sherman had weaker armor, it, the gun on it is equal to that of a Tiger. Okay. Both tanks exchange shots between each other. And Vitman decides, <laughs> I don't like this. I'm getting back out. So he goes back out of the town. On the way out, his tank, number 205, is hit by an anti-tank gun, immobilised. Right. Vitman and his crew get out. They manage to get out, and they ran back to the German positions. In the space of 15 minutes on his own, Vitman had taken out 14 British tanks, two anti-tank guns, and 15 transport vehicles. He single-handedly stopped the British advance. And he was uh, instantly field promoted to um, the next rank up, which is uh, Hauptsturmführer. Okay. Yeah. He was also given the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves and swords for that action alone. That action against the British made him famous. Yeah, I'm not surprised. The British knew who he was at that point. Yeah. I'm not surprised. He went into a town. He took on an entire armoured convoy and then entered enemy an enemy town on his own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit, a bit stupid, really. But, yeah, he, he, he did what he was supposed to do, didn't he? You well, know? yeah. You know, he's, he's a member of an armed forces. He does what he's done. Yeah. I mean, Wittmann was already known to almost every person in Germany. Yeah. Because once he... He became famous with the Russian side of things. He was photographed in newspapers, in magazines, everything. And, you know, tank commanders didn't get presented anything by Adolf Hitler. Wittmann did. Twice. Yeah, so he was a very, very famous person. And it was the German newspapers that dubbed him the Black Baron. Right. That's because of the uniform. Um, They basically made a hero out of him. He was like... He was the most feared German tank commander in uh, in the Second World War. Sherman and Churchill tank commanders they they thought that he was in every single Tiger tank that they confronted. Yeah. He was that sort of scared. It was like the Red Baron. Yeah, you know, every airman feared that the Red Baron was going to get on his ass and shoot him down. Mm. Every tank commander in the British and um, and American forces knew who yeah um michael vitman was yeah so he's, he had a he had a, he had a reputation and he was believed to be inside every single tiger tank they came across and unlike the red baron snoopy wasn't there to shoot him down <laughs> no um i mean he got married in germany and on march 1st 1944 so it's just that's just a, a little bit of sideline. so he was married he did get married on the 8th of august 1944, the Canadian forces, along with the British, uh, captured the high ground near a town called, now I can't pronounce this, uh, Saint-Eugène 
the Camasnil. So we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Something yeah. French. Yeah, something <laughs> French will do. Um, but it's there they stopped. They stopped their advance. So they went to the high ground above the town. They stopped. A daylight bombing raid by the Americans was scheduled for the early afternoon. Okay. And basically that was to soften up the German defending forces in the town. It wasn't going to be a small raid. Um, and the Allies didn't know what German forces they were going to be facing. So they just organised, let's go and bomb shit out of this town. Yeah. Yeah. So the raid was going to cover a massive area, because they didn't know where the Germans exactly were, but they were going to cover this massive area. And the raid was scheduled for 1226, and it was going to be by 681 American bombers. Bloody hell. It's not a small raid. No, and the Americans didn't exactly have small bombers either. No, no. Like, some like, of the, some of them were like they 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 had they, a massive. They do- dominated the Lancaster for size. They were huge. Now, the Germans they couldn't work out why the Allied forces had actually stopped, and the commander in charge of uh, the Germans decided that they were going to do an attack and recapture the high ground. Right. This would include their their attack would include seven tanks commanded by Wittmann. Now Wittmann was instructed to cross an open open ground and engage the Allied forces on the hill several miles away. So Wittmann's got seven tanks. Okay. He splits his forces and he sends three tanks across one field, while he takes another three across open ground. Now, his own tank, 205, was under repair. It had been pulled back out of the village yeah, and was under repair. So he took the command tank, all right, which was uh, number seven. Yeah. 007. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, this, is what I, this is where I know the story from. This is where you know the story yeah. from. Okay. This was the command tank. The other three tanks that in his little group of four was 009, 312, and 314, but you don't really need to know those. No. Okay. 1225. Now, bearing in mind the raid is 1226. 1225, the four German Tigers start their advance just as a bomber flies over the scene the bomber drops a flare for the main bombing force yeah the to the right of the open ground that Wittmann was crossing was an orchard now unknown to Wittmann the there was a group of Sherman tanks from the first Northamptonshire Yeomanry and they were equipped with M4 Shermans and they were waiting in this orchard they had with them one Sherman Firefly. Okay, so they had one against they, the. Yeah, they had one that could actually do damage. Now they were waiting for the bombers, but they were waiting out of view. To the right of the place where um, the uh, the Germans were crossing was a high wall of a French chateau, yeah, French mm-hmm. big sort mansion. of mansion house. Unfortunately for Wittmann, the Sherbrooke Fusiliers, which is a regiment of Canadian tanks, were positioned behind the wall. Mm. And they had knocked small firing holes in the wall, and they were also waiting for the bombers. So you ha- And the Sherbrookes had fireflies. Yeah. 
So they had that's where the damage would have come from. Okay. The four tigers rumbled slowly northwest, one after the other, in a column towards the open ground. They got seen early on by the Allied artillery, which basically opened fire on them. Uh, tigers didn't give a shit about that. They carried on. The column formation in a line gave them a bit of protection. Hmm. Because they're heading towards the artillery. Artillery is firing at them. And that's it. The German tanks stopped occasionally in low spots to return fire at the distant tanks that were on the hill. But the range was around 1,800 metres. It was still close enough for a a Tiger to take out a Sherman, which they actually did. They took out a couple of Shermans. 1,800 metres. Yeah, that's not close. That is not close. That's over a mile and a bit. Hmm. Yeah, 1,600 metres to the mile. Yeah. yeah, So you're talking 1.2 miles. And these these tigers are firing, and as it, the tigers continued to advance. The American bombers arrived. They started dropping their bombs on the German lines, but that's some miles behind the German tanks. These are the ones we're talking about. But as they started to drop their bombs, the German tigers, Wittmann's formation of four, they broke the column and decided they were going to advance by crossing left to right directly in front of the British tanks in the orchard. Okay. The distance is 1,200 metres. The British tanks waited until the range was 800 metres. At this range, Firefly could take out a Tiger, providing it hit the shell on the side armour. Okay. The M4 Shermans still couldn't do it even if they hit the side so you're looking at they're going past the british there's one tank that can do it out of the british tanks i mean that's that is when you think about that that is some seriously impressive bit of kit oh yeah there's only one tank that we had that could do anything against them yeah everything else is just like firing paintballs at it Mm. um i mean that sergeant gordon was in charge of the british tank unit and he was in he was in the firefly he decided to advance his firefly and engage the tigers. The time is 12.39. Gordon's firefly makes it to the edge of the orchard. He keeps his head out of the hatch to give himself a better view of the target, but he could still only see three of the four tigers. He engaged the rear vehicle, probably in the hope that the ones in front wouldn't, see it because it's behind behind, take the one out of the back yeah firefly's gun when fired creates a shockwave so the gunner sticks the round in the gun they have to cover their ears close their eyes and open their mouths before firing the gun because otherwise the shockwave would damage their internal organs has to be enough so they have to have their mouth open when the gun's fired bloody hell I said right at the beginning life in a tank wasn't the greatest thing on the planet yeah what I want to know is who was the poor bugger who realised that (laughs) (laughs) I I was certainly right the the tank the British tank got off two shots okay German tank didn't know what hit it went up in flames 1240 the firefly whoosh it 
backed into the floor, backed out of sight into the orchard. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, that, that particular tank at the time is outnumbered. Although it's got friends, it's outnumbered against tanks that can do more damage to it. As he reverses into the orchard, the uh, number two tiger turns its turret and three shots went towards the, the, the Sherman. Two, very, very close, but didn't hit it. The third one hit the open hatch, which crashed down on the Sergeant Gordon's head, knocked him out. It hit, what, the, the round hit his head or the hatch? The round hit the hatch, which banged onto his head, because he's sitting there, he's standing there looking out the top of the tank. <laughs> I mean, it's not a nice way of He was shot. dragged from the tank, and he was he survived, but he, he was just couldn't, couldn't carry on. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So another commander left his own tank to, and ran across, jumped into the Firefly and took over. That gentleman's name was Lieutenant James. He ordered the Firefly to a secondary position where it engaged and took on the other two Tigers. Okay. So you've now got a new commander in the, inside the Firefly and he takes out both Tigers. Okay, so he's done a good job then. 12.47 and 12.50. That's recorded in the tank's log. Nice. At the same time this was going on, the Canadians behind the Chateau Wall opened up on the four Tigers. So while that was going on, the Canadians opened fire. So now you've got the German tanks in open ground. They've got fire coming in from the right and fire coming in from the left, sideways on. Yeah, the only way that can do damage to them. <laughs> the Canadians' range was 200 metres. Okay, so not, not great. You know, and the four Tigers were out in the open. During this engagement, Tank 007 was hit. Yeah. It stopped moving. There was a small amount of smoke seen coming from it. And then there was a massive explosion... The turret was blown off and into the air and it landed upside down 40 feet from the rear of the actual main body of the tank. A lot of people thought that Wittmann had survived and ended up as a British a prisoner of war. He wasn't. Uh, but even a week later, after the battle, he was still classified as missing in action. Well, that's Nazi propaganda for you, though. None of the Allied tank people realized that Wittmann was in one of those four tank tigers that was destroyed <laughs> i can guarantee everybody was glad he was yeah yeah this short battle basically shows you the, the reality of tank warfare uh the, the the crew that spotted the tank first and fired first generally won cover and concealment was a a, a, a factor in the battlefield and obviously you have to be aggressive. You have to have the right terrain, and you could have a lot of luck. Mm. Um, all of these things combined in on August the eighth, nineteen forty-four, resulted in the death of one of Germany's greatest tank officers in just a couple of minutes. Yeah, it wasn't like a, a long battle or no. So, who actually fired the shot that took him out? <laughs> 
All right. There's a number of contenders. You've yes. got the Polish first armored first division. Um, they only made a claim after they knew it was Wittmann's tank, and it turns out they weren't even in the area. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, the air force. Uh, there were some rockets uh, found uh, close by. They were accompanying the bomber formations. This was a claim made by the Germans, not by the Allied forces. And basically, it was a claim made that the Tiger was invincible to ground forces, but to enforce the fact that Wittmann didn't stand a chance, yeah. uh, he had no defence against the cowardly attack from the air. Yeah, I kind of, I can get that. That was the German side of things. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. Why Turns they're... out there were no fighter aircraft in the area. Right. But that's the German propaganda for you. Yeah, but I can understand why they'd go down that road. Yeah. So it was the cowardly air force because he's got, they don't fight fair. Yeah. 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 Um, the British Firefly uh, destroyed three of the four tanks, but Wittmann's tank was at its maximum range. So potentially yes likelihood no yeah the canadians fired at and destroyed at least one tiger Wittmann's tiger 007 was less than 200 yards from them and it was the closest one to them yeah it makes sense when you look at it it's most likely the canadians that killed michael Wittmann, but there is still controversy I mean, Wittmann's tank was hit on the left rear quarter, just above the fuel tank. The shell penetrated the hull and ignited all the ammunition that was stored in the area. Wittmann and the crew were killed instantly. So after the battle, the crew were buried in open ground near to their destroyed tank. The position of the left rear quarter of Wittmann's tank was the side and the closest point to the Canadians. Right, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, 40 years after his death, Wittmann's remains were found in and um, in that communal grave. They identified him from um, dental records, and he was reburied in the German cemetery at the village of Lacombe. Now, the cemetery has over 21,000 graves. Of those 21,000, there is only one that constantly has fresh flowers. And that is Plot 47, Row 3, Grave 120. Michael Wittmann. Still has fresh flowers. People still leave flowers. At the time of his death, he was only a captain, but they... uh, he was known as the Black Baron. Hmm. That is the story of one of Germany's greatest tank commanders. Wow. Yeah. Now, whether you agree with his politics or the side that he fought for is totally irrelevant. The man was good at his job. Yeah, very good. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like I said at the start, it's very hard to Be look subjective. At, of, yeah. Subjective in the frame of what we know Mm. now but when you look at things like that um he was a tank commander he wasn't uh you know he was a he was a general soldier he 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 wasn't you know he wasn't a war criminal do you know Mm, what i mean he didn't take part 
as far as we know in some of the atrocities that happened during that war but we can't say that he didn't he was a member of the ss mm, yeah he was yeah. he was a member of the uh, adolf hitler the liebstandarter the the um lifeguard adolf hitler's lifeguard so yes yeah, I suppose we don't before the war it was a ceremonial post only but yeah, you know, he's know. still in the elite. He's still a member of the SS. He's a commander. You've got to, yeah, you know, so you've got to look at him objectively in the sense yeah, of it's very as difficult. A tank, as a tank commander, yeah, probably, probably the best that ever lived. Oh yeah, I mean, I'd love to sort of do some research on uh, the um, the tank commander that uh, actually had more or the most kills in uh, in the Second World War. Yeah, I mean that's that's very interesting to think that someone actually got 30, 30 more tanks. Yeah, well, Kurt Knipsel, or Knispel, I think you pronounce his name, hundred and sixty-eight tanks. Yeah, Wittmann, hundred and thirty, a hundred and thirty-eight tanks with a hundred and thirty-two uh, anti-tank guns. Mm, but also, I mean, when you when you look at things, so that. Uh, this Knispel might may have only done I don't know, maybe a hundred armored vehicles, whereas Vitman took out two entire lines on his. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, he took out two two entire convoys on his own. So, but it's it's very interesting, and like so, you it's he is the one that people know. Yeah. You know, like I said, I'd I'd heard of the Black Barons, I'd heard of Michael Vitman, you know, and it it was something that I know a little bit about i mean obviously i i don't know well like i said i would i purposely don't research things when i know you're researching it you do realize this is a very very long one don't you Uh, i'm sure people are still here (laughs) i'm sure they're still listening and if they're not then they're not missing anything right now because they're not listening anyway but yeah i mean I, i don't mind if they overrun we quite happy for them to overrun i'm sure everyone listening is quite happy for them to overrun sometimes so mm. there, there, are, there are some good i mean yeah i am quite uh, sort of I, I enjoy doing these uh with you for mm. things i there's no way i would do my own podcasts i don't know how you find time to do these to be honest it's um you know i just i do these a little bit of fun and and a, and a little bit a lot of what i actually give you I know anyway. Yeah. It's just some of the facts and some just of the sort of them out. ironing them out and, and giving it right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to the next one. Um, I've seen a, a list of uh, a couple that, <laughs> yeah. that are interesting, that definitely interest me. So, you have to keep your eyes out for those. One of them may not be the greatest one for the American listeners. Uh, oh, no, no. No, that one might not be. No. no. You're right there. Um but I think it's a very interesting one, and I want to do your analogy that you gave me a couple of weeks ago for that one. So yeah. you'll have to look out for that. That'll be a very good one. Um, probably be coming in the new year, I would have thought now. Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, so, yeah. So, I just, yeah, thank you for, for joining us. This one will um, be going out for those who are listening on Patreon now. You will have this, I would say by saturday the 18th of december i would have thought it'd be on patreon for then but it won't be going live until the following week on uh the after, actual after podcast. Christmas. yeah i would have thought it'd be after christmas so if you're listening to this after christmas and you think damn it i should have 
signed up to Patreon, then you know what to do next time. So, uh, but yeah, wonderful story. Uh, thank you very much again for joining us. And no problem. Yeah. I look forward to the next one. So do I. Uh, I'm sure they uh, all the listeners do as well. So, any feedback, guys? Like I say, every time, let us know. Drop us a message on Facebook. Drop us a message on the group. Um, you can also do it through iTunes. If anybody listening does have iTunes, leave us a review. Nothing is uh, more important to us than the the five star reviews that you can leave on iTunes because they do get seen um, and they bump us higher up the charts the more reviews we get so anything you don't even have to leave a, a commented re- review if you don't want to just click on the five stars if that's what you feel um, that would be really helpful so just remember guys thank you for joining us and remember we all have history so make yours great bye bye in the heat of the moment you're not just keeping it calm you're keeping it cool too with an ice cold cold brew And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. is always on but you shouldn't be put junk sleep to bed at mattress firm's black friday now sale save up to 60 percent on sealy with queen mattresses starting at 279.99 talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep This is Claudia's O'Reilly Auto Parts story. I had just moved to a new city and barely even knew where the grocery store was yet. When my car wouldn't start one morning, I didn't know who to ask about local shops. But I remembered a name from back home, O'Reilly Auto Parts. I called and they pointed me to a great mechanic just down the street. Now, I feel a little more at home. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with GEICO or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with GEICO. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com local today.